And so today, we're simply going to look at the issue of the, the gospel and how in the gospel, Jesus Christ is running after us, coming to get us. And somebody goes, oh, so you're just going to preach the gospel to us? Absolutely. I am convinced right now that the church needs to hear the gospel. And the reason why is because I think we've preached a gospel that's insufficient. I'm not saying I've got any better revelation than anybody. I'm just saying we just haven't preached a biblical gospel in a lot of places. And we've made, we preached a man-centered gospel. We've made it easy to believe and so, so, you know, satisfying to the ears. And the Lord, he warns us that in the last times, that people would heap up teachers that would just preach messages that would tickle the ears. And beloved, we need a conversion right now from Western Christianity to biblical Christianity. We need a conversion. And so I want to preach the gospel to us and, and, and I'm just trying to be biblical because Paul said to, to the Romans, he goes, I can't wait to show up. Because when I show up, I want to impart a spiritual gift to you, and I want to preach the gospel to you, to the church. And I'm convinced that we have a gospel problem because we've had a lack of gospel preaching, and we've lacked a, a gospel conversion as a result. And so we've lived with easy believism and mental assent. And the phrase the Lord put in my heart that's something that I want to attack today is he put this phrase in my heart, counterfeit conversion where we, we say yes to the concept of Christianity. We say yes to some of the moral tenets of Christianity. Not all of them, because that would be too radical. We say yes to, to some of the, the, the details, enough that we feel good about ourselves. And then we actually treat Jesus like he's a self-help plan or like he's some sort of psychologist to just walk you through your little issue right here and now. Instead of seeing Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords who requires all of our lives, we treat him like he's the mascot of this, this thing, this system of belief we call Christianity. Our little Jesus, our little mascot, we put him in our pocket, and then we bring him out when, you know, it's, it's convenient. But when it's not, we just put him right back in our pocket, and we continue to live according to the culture. Beloved, that has to stop. That has to stop and come to an end. This cannot be the way we live our Christianity. Christianity is not a system of belief. It is a life surrendered to God. It is a life given over to God. It's a life that recognizes it has been bought and ransomed with the blood of Jesus Christ. And as a result, you give your life back to him. That's Christianity. It's not a system of belief, a, a few nice little things you add, a, a couple little you know, moral things you do. It's not something you add on top of your previously successful life. It's when you lay your life down for the one who's laid his life down for you. This is what's in my heart, beloved. Because even us, many who've been around the church a long time, we've begun to make peace with compromise. We, we, we've begun to get comfortable with, you know, cutting the corners and rounding off the edges. And I would just tell you, listen to me, if your heart's not burning for Jesus this morning, if you're not, if you're not radically in love with Jesus this morning, I'm calling you out of that because that's illegitimate. Yeah. 
The church was never supposed to be a boring place of droning religion. It was supposed to be a white, fiery, hot place of people who are extravagantly in love with Jesus. That's who we're called to be. So, man, if your Christianity is boring this morning, I want to call you into the real thing. Because it's likely that you have gotten used to the counterfeit, and the counterfeit is just not doing it. So that's where we're at. Like I said, no seatbelts. God didn't create us to live at a distance. He didn't create humanity to live far away from him. He created humanity to be close to him. He wants intimate relationship with us. When you read the biblical narrative, it's absolutely clear. God's idea of what his relationship with humanity is supposed to be is that he, he's, he wants to redeem humanity to this place of becoming, the biblical phrase is, a kingdom of priests, okay? And let me just break that down for just half a second. A kingdom of priests, does that mean everybody is a vocational minister? No, but everybody is a minister. Everybody in the kingdom is a priest. Everybody. There aren't special ones that you have to go through to get to God. That is a lie. We're to be a kingdom of priests. And here's what a priest does. A priest relates to God on behalf of men and relates to men on behalf of God. And here's what God wanted. Everybody in the kingdom to be a priest and have access to his heart. Access to his ways, access to his love. And then from that place of burning with the love of God, because you've had access to him, then you're able to relate to men and you're saying, do you know what he's like? Do you know what God is like? You know, witnessing isn't some spiritual discipline that you're supposed to have to like force yourself to do. Witnessing is supposed to be an overflow of a life that's burning with Jesus, burning with the love of God. And so it's just natural. Who, what, whatever you love, you'll talk about. Whatever's got your attention, it'll come out of your mouth. And so as a kingdom of priests, there's no big eyes and little use. It's all of us invited into the presence of Jesus. And now we live in an age where the veil of the temple is rent, and we have access to the very throne of God, every one of us. And so since we have access, God wants us to live in that place of burning and intimacy and love with him so that we can naturally let that flow out of us everywhere we go. You may not be called vocationally into the ministry. You may vocationally be called into a marketplace, but as a kingdom of priests, we're all missionaries. We're all to live on mission. That's not just for that passionate kid who wants to go to Africa. That's for all of us. That's the kingdom of God. And this is God's desire that we would live close, that we would live near, that we wouldn't get put to sleep by a system of religion, that we would have face-to-face -face kind of encounters with him, that our hearts would be lit on fire, so we understand that the entry point to the kingdom of God, the entry point is the gospel. We understand that, that you can't get into relationship with Jesus without going through the cross of Jesus Christ. 
without going through and under the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no one who of himself is good enough to have intimacy with God because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God right? Every one of us is trapped under sin. Every one of us is lost. Every one of us is doomed without Jesus. And so it's only through the cross, only through Jesus' shed blood that we're able to even come to God. Every last one of us, we are helpless and hopeless without Jesus. And through the cross of Jesus Christ, we're able to draw near. But here's the thing, The blood of Jesus isn't something you just get to add to your previous life, and now you have license into the throne room because you've just added the blood of Jesus along with all the other things in your life. What the blood of Jesus is, it's a mark. God covers you with his mark, and he says, you're mine. And so when you come to Jesus, you don't come with all your stuff Here I am, Jesus, me and all my stuff and everything I want to be and do in life, all my hopes and dreams and all my, you know, my house and my 401k and and everything that I want to do. Here I am, Jesus. I'll show up on Sundays and I'll give you a little tip in the offering. Make it so I don't go to hell. And all the Lord bless my business and bless my family. No, no. When you come to Jesus with all your stuff, you go, all this stuff bought me nothing. I've got nothing. I am nothing. I am lost. I am hopeless. I don't need the stuff because the stuff didn't save me. In fact, most of the stuff distracts us. It gives us a false sense of security, and we think that because we got stuff that we're okay. Beloved, America's got a lot of stuff. Let me ask you a question. Is America okay right now? Are we okay? No, we're not okay. You know what we are? We're anesthetized to the gospel. You know what we've had? An inoculation. You know what an inoculation is? When they give you an inoculation, when they give you a little shot uh, uh, for your flu, your flu shot, they put a little bit of flu in you. So your body begins to resist it, and the antibodies begin to grow inside of you, and then all of a sudden, you have an immunity built up against what? The real thing. I'm concerned that we've been inoculated to the gospel and we've never actually had the real thing. I'm serious, guys. This is not a preacher story. I'm serious. I'm really concerned about the state of the church right now. And not just our spiritual family. Yes, us, but I'm talking about all of us. And I'm I'm not pointing at them out there and saying, oh, we're all off the hook in here. No, no. We're totally in danger in here and we're totally in danger out there. Why? Because I think we've all been inoculated and we don't even know it. Well, what am I, why am I saying that? Here's why. Because I've been to over 30 nations, and I've seen the way the gospel has produced uh, discipleship in other nations, and I've watched what it looks like when people who are, who are getting pressed on every side, when they're being persecuted, they've lost their families, their houses, their finances, and they're just living for Jesus. What that really looks like, which is way more what the New Testament looks like. And I look at us, and I go, man, we just kind of come to church if we feel like it. We kind of just, you know, read the Bible when we want to. There's no urgency. Guys, I've been to churches where they had to run me down the street and tuck me in. Because if anybody saw somebody that wasn't from that country, the police would show up to arrest everybody. 
Not once. I've been that in many, many places. There is a version of Christianity that the world, it's, it's happening in other nations that's completely different than our version of Christianity. And we don't realize it, that all of our stuff is distracting us. When you're more in tune with your social media feed than you are with the feed coming from the throne room, we've got a problem, beloved. We've got a real problem. The church should be a prophetic people hearing the word of the Lord and speaking the word of the Lord. And let me just tell you something. The word of the Lord shouldn't look like what's coming across Fox News or MSNBC. The word of the Lord is coming from the throne room of God, and it's mostly not resident in our news feeds and mostly not resident in our social media. And I want to just say this. God wants everyone in relationship with him. He wants everyone to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He's not slack about this. He's not lazy about it, is what the Bible is telling to tell us in, in, in 2 Peter. He's not lazy about this point. He's willing that none would perish, that all would come to the knowledge of Jesus. God wants relationship with everybody. You in the back row, God wants relationship with you. You that's listening online, he wants relationship with you. How near to God you are today or how far you are from God today, it doesn't matter. He is not lazy about this. He wants you. He wants you. You have to know that, that God is pursuing you. He's after you. He's interested in you. Some people, they just believe, well, I'm not a preacher, so God's not as interested in me as whoever. That's not true. That's a lie. God is interested in you. He wants you. I'm begging you to hear the word of the Lord. He's after you. He's pursuing you. And I'll tell you this, that the gospel, it's as powerful today as it was the day that Jesus shed his blood. I'm telling you, the gospel has not lost one bit of power. The shed blood of Jesus is still mighty to save all that call on his name. It still delivers the sinner. It still breaks bondages. I don't care if you're addicted to meth. I don't care if you've got a pornography addiction. I don't care what your issue is. The gospel is still the answer. It's still the answer. It's still the answer. We have to have a revival of the gospel. I'm tired of human strategies and church growth plans. I'm tired of working our way to figuring out how to grow the church. We need the gospel. Listen, I am not mad at you. I'm serious, though. This is serious. We can't go along imagining we're in great shape because nothing really bad is going on. And we're in danger because we've lived under a counterfeit conversion. Because we've heard an impart gospel, which Paul would call another gospel, that imagines there's some other way to get justification. You're not justified by your works. You're not justified by anything you own. You're not justified by the lack of problems you have in your life. So many people think, well, I don't have any issues, so I'm good. No, you're not good. If you don't know Jesus, you're not good. And someone go, well, I, you know, I, I go to church. I, I read a daily devotional about once a month. I go to church, you know, 
couple times a month. I even, I even put money in the offering sometimes. I'm good. I'm a Christian. No. No, Jesus didn't die naked on the cross for the whole world to see with blood coming out of his body in every possible place. So you could be a half-baked, lukewarm person who's <laughs> mentally assenting to Christianity and calling yourself okay. That's not, that's not, why, G, that's not why God came and died on the cross so you could be a halfway, sort of just barely get by Christian? In a, in a cultural Christian mindset of a society that says we're all Christians, we're in the Bible Belt. Everybody's saved. No, we're not. If we were all saved, glory would be hitting. Majesty would be on display. But man, you look at our situation, and there's just not much distinguishable difference between the world and the church. Where is the power of the gospel? Where's the power of the cross? I don't think the cross has lost its power. I think we just haven't said yes to the cross yet. I'll just say that again. The cross hasn't lost its power. I just think we haven't said yes to the power of the cross yet. We've become so familiar with it. We just think we know it, and we don't. I like to say this. If you're bored with God, or if you think you know a passage, how could you possibly be bored with one who is infinite and with a word that is the foundation of truth? If you're bored with that, I guarantee the problem isn't with the word or with God. The problem is here. Come on. Look, I'm not just preaching at you. I'm talking to me too. Look, Humphrey, when you read the word, if it's not burning in you, the problem's here. It's not with the word. It's the very word of God. Who's the most interesting person that you can think of that's, you know, that's not Jesus and you want to talk to me? You go, man, I just love when they talk. I just love chewing it up with them because it's just so enriching. God is a million times infinitely more interesting than they are. So coming before the word should be a, an expedition in interest because he's God. There's none like him. So with all that in mind, that was the introduction. I want to look at the Apostle Paul because there's one guy in the Bible where we actually get his full, in the New Testament, I mean, we get his full-blown testimony. There's only one, and it's Paul. We see what he was like before, we see what he's like after. He comments on what he was like after. We get the detail of what it was like when he got saved. He's the only guy that we get the full testimony of what happens to an individual when you get confronted with Jesus, okay? So we're going to read the passage. It's Acts chapter 9. I'll make comments on it as we read through it. Sometimes when we have the public reading of Scripture, you can just kind of doze off, just zone out. Don't do that right now. Pay attention to what happened to Paul because... I'm not saying everybody has to be knocked down on the floor by light, but I am saying that there's rudiments of what happened in Paul that should be resident in all of us if we truly got saved and if we truly are serving Jesus. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Are you with me? Are the rest of you with me? Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He went to the high priest. He said, give me letters that deputizes me so I can go to the synagogues, and if I find anybody in the synagogues in Damascus, which is in Syria, if I can find anybody in those synagogues, I want to get them arrested. 
I want to bring them back here. Why? Because ultimately he wanted to murder them. This is where Paul was at. You can't find a figure that seems to be more antichrist than the apostle Paul. When he describes himself, he goes, I'm the least of the apostles because he goes, I was a persecutor of the church. He realizes, he goes, I'm at the, the bottom rung of humanity. I hated Jesus and I hated anybody that followed him. This is where he was at. So he's been deputized. He's got these, these letters. He's wanting to arrest anybody. As he journeyed, anybody that's following Jesus, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I'm going I'm to go into that phrase in just a minute. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then he said to him, arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Listen, when you come to Jesus, when you really come to Jesus, you don't come to Jesus going, Jesus, here's what I need you to do for me. Listen. Jesus, here's what I need you to do for me. He said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Sometimes we've got this thing turned around. We think God is our holy errand boy. We think God's on our time frame. God's supposed to do what we want him to do. God's supposed to make things the way that we like it. So he serves our preferences. He serves, you know, our, our you know, uh, opportunities for blessing. God is supposed to make us great. That's what we think. And I would tell you, that is not biblical Christianity. If you imagine that, that Jesus is somebody you get to add to your life so that you can be blessed, be happy, have peace, and everything goes perfect for you, you answered a false altar call. That's not Christianity. When you encounter Jesus, you come to him and you say, God, what do you want of me? Anything you want. I want you make, make of my life whatever you want. I don't want me in my opinion. Sometimes we imagine the voice of the Lord is our opinion. Hello. And we're bold about our opinion. And we think because we carry a Christian label. And we're bold about our opinion that we're speaking the word of the Lord. And I would tell you, the Lord's opinion is not like any of our opinions. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are far are his ways above our ways and his thoughts above our thoughts. Our opinions have to be submitted to the Lord Jesus, and then we can actually have something to say. We just can't imagine that we can bring to God all of our stuff, our opinions, our preferences, and ask God to bless us and do for us, and that's Christianity. It is not. When Paul came to Jesus, God, what do you want of me? Make of me whatever you want. Lord, what do you want from me? And I would just tell you, if you, if you came to Jesus with your hands full instead of your hands open, you may need to come back with your hands empty. The Lord said to him, arise, go into the city, you'll be told what you must do. And the man who journeyed with him stood speechless, 
hearing a voice but seeing no one. It's interesting when you hear Paul retell it. The guys by him, they heard something, saw something, or didn't hear something and didn't see something. I don't think Paul really knew. He goes, I got hit with a blast from heaven. Everybody was freaked out, including me. That's the point. And here's Paul. He gets knocked to the ground by light. Jesus speaks to him. And when he gets up, his physical eyes are closed, but his spiritual eyes are opened. He can't see naturally, but spiritually he's perceiving something like he's never thought before. Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into, into Damascus, and he was three days without sight. You ever just wondered what that would be like? I mean, if, you, if you're a person that's got normal sight, you have such an encounter, you don't see for three days. That's got your attention, doesn't it? He did not, ne- neither ate or, nor drank. He was so disrupted. He just set himself aside and said, God, do whatever you want to do with me. He wouldn't even, he wouldn't even have water. Can you imagine? I, I watch sometimes how people come to Jesus, and it's just casual. Man, you want to get saved? Yeah. Don't want to go to hell? Nah. All right, we'll pray this simple prayer. All right. How'd, how'd that go? Oh, I'm good now. You're saved? Oh, yeah, I'm saved. I prayed the prayer. That blows my mind. Where's the heart tremble? Where's the repentance? How do we preach salvation without repentance? How do we do that? How can we tell people, come to Jesus, bring everything you got, but you don't have to turn away from everything. You just come to Jesus. Listen, I believe there's a truth. Come to him as you are. He wants you. You don't have to clean. See, that, that hits this mindset. You can to clean yourself up before you come to God. Nobody can clean themselves up before they come to God, right? So we say, come as you are. So you show up, and you're a wreck. And that's okay. Be a wreck. We're all a wreck without Jesus. That's the truth. We're all a wreck. But, but come as you are, but when you encounter him, really encounter him, you give all that you are away so that Jesus can now be your life. He's not our mascot. Now, there's a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise, go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. I just think that's awesome. Jesus appears to Ananias. And then Paul, while he's praying, no, he can't see. He's not drinking, not eating. He's just in there going, dear God, what just happened? And God goes, Ananias is coming. And he shows him Ananias coming to lay hands on him. And there's Ananias, and Jesus tells him, he's already seen the vision of you coming, so go ahead. (laughs) So awesome. And then Ananias complains for a few verses, which I put dot, dot, dot. He's like, that guy murders people, Jesus. But the Lord said to him, go, for he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. I'm going to pull that out in just a moment. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he rose and was baptized. Now, that's Paul's encounter. 
We're going to circle back on a few points. Look at what Paul says about it. I've got Philippians 3, verse 7 right here. Look at what Paul says about this, about his life before and after. He says, what things, verse 7, Philippians 3, what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. Oh, beloved, I feel like we've been on a sugar high. I I feel like we've had so many self-help, feel-good messages. We're afraid to leave church unsettled. That's That's not how the preachers of old would do it. They would preach messages that pierced and cut to the heart, and people would be all stirred up. And sometimes they'd say, if you want to give your life to the Lord Jesus, come forward. And they would sit. They'd have a chair. Not fitty, man. Make them sit in a chair. They'd sit in a chair. And the guy would be like, I want to get saved. And he'd go, okay. And he'd make him sit in the chair the whole service. And he'd go, come back tomorrow. And the guy goes, I'm going to hell. He goes, you need to come back tomorrow. Like, what? See, we are so cheap at dispensing salvation because we're trying to grow the church because we want to have a semblance of success that we offer cheap salvation to grow our numbers. And, and, And by the way, we don't end up saved. Because the people don't come to a real conviction of their sin. How do you get saved if you don't repent? And how can you repent unless you know you're drowning in sin? And how can you say no to sin unless you know it's killing you? Beloved, we don't have gospel preaching very often anymore. We have preaching about how you can be blessed, how you can succeed, how how you can grow this and that. And it's like four points to happiness. And I would just tell you, you can't find four points to happiness in the scriptures. You can plug things together and and chicken pick, you know, different blessings you want and put them together the way you like. But man, if you read the narrative, no. That's not the narrative of the scripture. The narrative of the scripture is God is after you. He bids you to come. And when he tells you to come, he says, get rid of your life and follow me. That's the narrative. Some noteworthy points about Paul's conversion. Man, I got too much to say and not enough time to say it. Paul was successful. Listen to me. He was successful. He was being promoted up the ranks in religion. Many of his contemporaries, he would say it in Galatians, that many of his contemporaries, he was passing them by because he kept getting promoted. He was the up-and-coming Pharisee. He was in line for authority in that system. And and here's the, the... I mean, this is like the sedative that we've bought, that if we're successful financially, that we're not in need spiritually. It's a lie. It is a lie. Just because your life is comfortable, it doesn't mean you're not in danger. 
If you're trying to count on your own success and your own ability to sort of somehow smooth things over, or if you're just so anesthetized because you're so comfortable all the time that you don't have a recognition of your need, I'm saying, hey, wake up, man. Because success in a temporal way means nothing for your eternal salvation. And here's Paul who's on the way, not just in the business world, he's on the way in the religious power structure. He was making his way up in what, what, what was the religion of the day. And it amounted to nothing. I just think when we stand before the Lord, it's going to be a shock to many people. Because they're going to go, Lord, I, I did all of this. I built all of this, and I did all this for, your, for you. I just look at everything I have to offer. He, and he's just going to look at it and go, wood, hay, stubble. Let's try that with fire and see how it turns out. Because you came to me, and you never left you. Paul shows up. He's, he's, he's peaking. He's at the top. And the Lord goes, none of it. I want none of it. And look, Jesus knocks him off the top. All right? And then Jesus uses this term with Paul, kick against the goads. And it just sounds like an old King James kind of a thing. I'm like, well, what does that even mean? Kick against the goads. What was a goad? A goad was a prodding stick with a sharp end that they would use to, to prod oxen. When the oxen wouldn't go a certain direction, they would begin to prod them from multiple angles. It was a way that they herded oxen. Okay? They herded them here and there. It's just a prodding stick. What's Jesus saying to Paul? He knocks him off the horse. He goes, who are you, Lord? He goes, it's me, Jesus, whom you're persecuting. He goes, I mean, and you got to imagine in Paul's mind, what? You're Jesus? What? He goes, it's hard for you to kick back against my prodding stick. I go, oh, Jesus. See, Habakkuk, the Lord uses this term. He says, I'll hedge you in with thorns. So you turn to the right. You go, oh, wait, ow. You turn to the left, ow. Look, he's not the thorn. He's just putting the thorns around you. So when you try to get away from him, you feel the ow on it. And Jesus goes, there are prodding sticks all around you, Paul. You keep trying to come this way, you're going to feel that sharp prod every time. He goes, that's what's going on here right now. It's hard for you to kick against that, isn't it, Paul? And I think about Jesus, and I just, it makes me wonder. I go, Lord, how intense are you? How serious are you? You're not playing any games, Jesus. You're not goofing around. I mean, you love us, but he's got that fatal attraction kind of love. No, he does. He's got that scary, look at you, kind of crazy kind of love. <laughs> it's more than reckless love. It's crazy, <laughs> you know. He's got that. He's just got that, like, I'm staring at you, and I'm not going to let you go kind of love. And you go, oh, can you stop looking at me, man? He's like, nah. I want you. You're like, I, I need a break. I just need a little break, a little Jesus break. He goes, no, 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 this is not about getting a break from me. I will have you. He's got that look, and you're like, Jesus, could you calm down? He goes, uh-uh, I don't calm down. I'm a consuming fire. I never calm down. And we... We think he's sort of like manageable, and you can sort of bargain with him. And you can, hey, Jesus, I'll tell you what, I'm going to really go hard for you. But Friday night, I just got to get, you know, I just got to get my groove on. Jesus, he's like, no, no, no. It's going to be really hard for you on Friday night. You will be kicking against my prodding stick. 
He's, he's the original fatal attraction. And then I just, I just think, this would never go over in American churches. Ananias, go preach the gospel to him, and then tell him this. He's got to suffer a lot for my name's sake. That wasn't penance, beloved. That's Christianity. That's God saying he's chosen. He's my vessel. I'm going to use him. And where I use him, he will suffer. He wasn't, that's not a payback. You could read that with an American mindset. Go, oh, well, Paul was a bad guy, so he had to pay it all back. No, no, no. Jesus paid for it all on the cross, paid for all of Paul's sin. It was God's choice to call Saul, make him Paul, and put him in a place where he preached the gospel and suffer. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ suffered for us. Why? So we can bear up when we suffer. So many think, well, he suffered so I don't have to. That's false. The New Testament, there's such a rich theology of suffering. He suffered first so that when we suffer by the grace of God, we stay faithful through the suffering. That's Christianity. There's this mentality that if it's God, it'll never be hard. Wrong! I just, man, I I love you American Christians. I love you. Don't tell me again the grace is lifted because it got hard. Now that's when the grace kicks in. It being hard isn't a measure of whether the grace is there or not. The point of grace is it enables you to do stuff you would never do any other way. That's the point of grace. We use this charismatic phrase, well, the grace is lifted. No, if the grace is lifted, you're not saved. You better hope the grace didn't lift. Just, you just won't get a good response from me if you tell me the grace is lifted. It's just not biblical. No, we are saved by grace and we live by grace. The only way that we do anything is by grace. The the difficulty of our journey has nothing to do with the measure of grace that we're experiencing. In fact, if you want more grace, you probably are going to, you know, if you're going to experience more grace, you're probably going to have to go through some hard stuff. We humble ourselves and more grace comes. Paul then says, everything I had going for me was rubbish. It was all garbage. It was all loss. It was junk. Let me ask you, just let me ask you, when you came to Jesus, when you came to Jesus, did you have that mindset that everything you had going for you was just trash? Is it your mindset today that what you have going for you and your own abilities and own giftings and own opinions and own preferences, that in the sake, for the sake of the knowledge of Jesus, that what you have is garbage? This is a man that had everything in his sphere. He said, it's all junk. Is that our mentality? Because if it's not, I just wonder what we got saved into. Just wonder how we position Jesus in our lives. God's pursuing you this morning. Listen, don't do the religious thing. Don't do the thing where you say, I've heard this message. I've heard a gospel message before. I'm good. It's probably the person next to me. No, it's probably you. Don't do that thing. We go, oh, it's a couple areas, but you know, me and the Lord, we have an understanding. No, you don't. We have false, I remember the Lord, I remember one time I was in a prayer, I was in a prayer time, and I was, I was crying out for revival, and the Lord said, you've believed that I'm in agreement with the sins of your heart, but I'm not. 
I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm trying, I'm praying for revival here, Lord. He goes, yeah, let's start with you. You think I'm in agreement with your compromises, and I'm not. Lord Jesus, that's me, I'm crying out for revival. He goes, I'm trying to revive you. Man, we're pros at going through the motions without having the actuality on the inside. So let's look at Jesus' invitation. Man, y'all, Jesus' invitation. I'm getting frustrated because of our time. <laughs> Luke 9, look at this. Jesus said this. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. We think taking up our cross daily is like, man, my commute to work is actually 20 minutes. We think it's like we went to Starbucks to order a latte and they were out of milk that day. Oh, I'm just bearing my cross. No, you're not. <laughs> he says, deny yourself. He's talking about your dreams, your plans, your ambitions, your hopes, your preferences. What you want to stand with. He says, deny yourself and daily die. I, you know, marriage is an exercise in the cross. It's far more about going to the cross daily than it is like Cinderella riding off into the sunset happily ever after. Oh, y'all didn't get that point yet? <laughs> trying to figure out why it's, why it's hard. Because God's trying to kill you through your spouse. That's what marriage is. It's a spiritual discipline to take you to the cross. What do you think husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church? What do you think that even means? Die, man. And what do you think it even means? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. What do you think that means, woman? Die. You just submit to that guy. Die now. Everybody's going to the cross. Really? You think marriage is about your happiness? Some people think that a tenant of the kingdom of God is the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. Guys, that's America. That's not the kingdom. What did I just say? Yeah, I just said that. American pursuits are not the kingdom of God's pursuits. Settle that. God is far less interested in your temporal happiness than you've been led to believe. He's extremely committed to your eternal salvation, far less interested in your temporal happiness. He doesn't mind if it's difficult here and now if it brings out of your heart righteousness. Does that make sense? Jesus goes, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Listen, those disciples, they weren't figuratively thinking, oh, I'm going to have to like go without Starbucks today. No, they were looking at taking up their cross and they had seen the Roman crucifixions. And they were looking at it going, I'm daily? You're crucified daily? What do you mean? You want to follow me, son? Take up your cross daily. That was not some easy word that they kind of just, you know, reconfigured in some Western American mindset. No, they stared at that cross, those crosses. They'd seen crucifixions. I mean, that was happening all the time. They looked at that and go, daily, huh? This is serious. And he says this, whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. Whatever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father is in heaven. He's absolutely clear 
that following him would require you siding with Jesus when public opinion was against him. He's absolutely clear about this. If you confess him, it's not just, I I prayed at an altar one time. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about going through your life when the issues of morality and the kingdom of God come up. When When it's Jesus and he's put in the same pot as Buddha and Muhammad and Confucius and all the other false gods. Do you say, no, 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 I just want to mention Jesus is, he's God. And every one of these others is not. Do you confess him or do you not? Do you, you know, do you get in the conversation with the person and they go, well, you know, Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, you know, there's, there's many ways to get to God. And you just go, uh-huh. Do you do that? Or do you go, actually, I don't believe that. I believe that there's only one way given among men by which we must be saved. There's only one name. There's only one name under heaven. Jesus Christ, he's God. And there is no other. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? We round the corners, man. We, cut, we make shortcuts all the time, and we don't realize it, but our compromises are putting us squarely in opposition to what Jesus said Christianity would require. Somebody goes, well, what about grace, brother? Yeah. What about grace? By grace, you've been saved. It's a free gift from God. It's not of works lest any man should boast. The fact that God would send his son, wrap him in flesh, allow him to be tortured, crucified naked in front of the world, shed his blood for you because he wanted you, that's grace. You've given us, we sang it, you've given us so very much. Lord, it's enough. It's enough. You've given us so very much. I remember reading hearing Ravenhill, Leonard Ravenhill years ago, and he said, you know, Christians, we don't, we don't lie, we don't say lies, we sing them. Is it enough? Is Jesus and nothing enough for your salvation? Honestly, think it through. Before you, you just go, yes. Think it through. Is Jesus enough? Is the grace of God revealed in Christ, revealed in the cross of Christ, is it enough for you, or did you get saved for Jesus plus? Because what our promises have been from Western pulpits are, come to Jesus. He's a wonderful plan for your life. He's going to bless you. He's going to cause your, your life to be easy. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Come to Jesus. He's going to forgive you and cleanse you. We don't even tell them they've got to turn from sin. We don't even tell them that they're going to hell. I don't even know that we are actually preaching the gospel if we don't tell people you're going to hell, if you don't give your life to Jesus. I just did a wedding recently with the Bullard family, beautiful family here in our community, spiritual family in our community. They said, we want you to preach the gospel. I said, okay, like, what do you want, like three minutes? They go, 20 minutes. In 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 a wedding ceremony, I go, okay. They go, oh, yeah, we want an altar call and everything. I go, okay. Yeah. I go, oh, okay. Daniel, Daniel Garner and Rebecca and Daniel, now it's Rebecca Garner. And, and I said, you want an altar call, huh? They said, oh, yeah. They go, we got pastors ready standing by to lay hands on people in the altar. We want to get them saved and filled with the Spirit. I go, in the wedding, in the wedding. They go, oh, yeah. 
We're, it's all for Jesus anyway. And I told people at the wedding, if you don't know Jesus, you're destined to hell. Not because I'm trying to rub it in anybody's face, but because I'm concerned. And I'll tell you again this morning, if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't been converted, if you've believed on another gospel, if you're walking around with easy believism and you're wearing some Christian moniker over your life, but it's not actuality in your heart, I fear for your destiny eternally because if you don't know Jesus Christ, you will spend eternity separated from him in hell. A place never created for humanity, a place created for the angels that turned against God. But this is what happens. Humanity and our foolishness and our sinfulness, we actually side with Satan against God. And we end up in the same punishment that was reserved for Satan himself. And how do we side with Satan? By thinking we can do it ourselves. By thinking we can do life ourselves. Thinking we just, we're good enough. I'm basically a good person. That's false. All of sin fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in desperate need. That's what grace bought us, man. If it wasn't for grace, oh, the wonder and the beauty of God's grace. I was dead, man. I was dead. I hated God. I stood in a church at 15, and I demanded, God, if you're real, strike me down. You're not real. Beep, beep, beep you. That's what I did. And God goes, oh, is that how it is? He goes, we'll see. We'll see. You hate me? He goes, I love you. You're against me? Oh, I'll have you. I'll have you. And all my raging and all my sin and all my aggression and all of my opposition, all my anachristic mentalities, he said, I am not intimidated by you one bit. He said, I know how to get you, son. And man, when those goads came in, and those hedges came in, I couldn't turn right or left. I looked, I said, Jesus, save me. Save me, Jesus, save me. Forgive me, forgive me. I'm so thankful for the grace of God. But let me tell you, that's the very same grace. It's not a license for sin. That very same grace is not some, you know, just pass so that you pray to prayer one time and then you can just live any way you want. That's false. That is false. Listen to these verses on grace. Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Teaching us deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. That's grace. It teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. It doesn't encourage us in our sin. It commands us out of it. That we would live soberly, righteously, godly in this present age. Look what Paul said, Romans 6, coming to a close. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. New American Center says, may it never be. Listen, I'm thankful that we have Jesus Christ, an advocate with the Father, that when we sin and we confess our sin and we run back to Jesus, he's right there and his mercy covers us and cleanses us and makes us just as if we'd never sinned. That's the power of the cross. That's the power of grace. That's the power of justification. I'm so grateful for that. But let me tell you something. You didn't get saved so that sin could be your friend. 
You didn't get saved, so compromise could be normal for you. That's not what salvation brought you. I mean, the scripture is so, so clear. Friendship with the world makes us an enemy of God. Let me ask you then, why does the church work so hard to present ourselves, measuring ourselves with the world? Why are we trying to outdo MTV or whatever the presentations? Why? We're not supposed to be friends of the world. We're supposed to be separate and different, saved from sin, cleansed. Last thought. In the West, we use terms like lukewarm Christian. Think about that term for a minute. Lukewarm Christian. You know the passage, Revelation 3. He said, I wish you're hot or cold, but if you're lukewarm, I will vomit you from my mouth. Beloved, I want to propose to you, there's no such thing as a lukewarm Christian. If you're lukewarm about Jesus, you're not a Christian. That's what Revelation 3 says. Now, do people get saved and they're baby Christians and they need to grow in God? Yes. Do, do people have sins that they need to repent of and overcome? Yes. Do, are, are there things resonant in, in their hearts and strongholds when they get born again and they, they've got to get, get free of those strongholds? Yes. Can they actually have an authentic salvation and still be working through? Yes, 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 yes. But I think in the West, we've happily sev- settled into lukewarmness, called it Christianity, don't think about it much. We're insulated by all the stuff we have and our liberties. And we just imagine that sort of being passionless about Jesus is okay. Or saving our spirituality for Sunday is okay. And I would tell you it's not okay. Listen, God is pursuing us. He's pursuing us in this spiritual family. Why? Because he wants to encounter us. He really wants to encounter us. He wants to pour out his spirit here in a powerful way, and in many, many, many churches. But he wants to pour out his spirit, but I'm just gonna tell you, he's not gonna pour out his Holy Spirit where we are compromising in sin and complacency. And so there has to be a time where we just say, you know what? I'm not gonna play games anymore. I'm not gonna pet my issues anymore. I'm not gonna just hold these little things to the side anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm ridding myself of these things and I'm running to Jesus. I'm not coming to Jesus with all my stuff and asking him to bless it anymore. I'm opening my hands and saying, Jesus Christ, have all of me. Have all of me. Amen.